0: Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today we have Rob Enigle. Rob is a 2022 Paralympian. He competed in Beijing. He has many first sit-ski descents. We'll talk about that. Some of these 40 to 50 degrees. 40 to 50 degrees is like you're hitting your shoulder on the side. Uh, He's a mentor and a coach for the newly injured people coming out, learning to ski for the first time up in Montana. Started mono skiing three months after being a passenger in a car that had an accident, which left him paralyzed. Rob, thanks so much. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is great. Now, I mean, I've got to ask you about three months. I thought I was pretty impressive. I started skiing 362 days after my accident. You yeah. started skiing <laughs> three months. And, and you know, I, I did have a bit of the issue of seasons not quite yeah. aligning. But at the same time, three months, how stable were you? Cause it takes bone three months to heal. So you were still relatively delicate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, uh, I I got paralyzed, uh, October 1st of, I believe 2011. I think I've been paralyzed about nine years. Uh, but I got lucky. Uh, I ended ended up meeting a guy right before my paralyzation. Uh, his name is David pool. He goes by madman pool. And, uh, he came into the store I worked at. It was a Verizon. Um, and I ended up helping him out, uh, and during that time frame, I uh, uh, while I was talking to him, one of my friends who hunts and fish, she came up to the, she came up to Dave and was like, "Hey, have you been hunting and fishing, Dave?" And I'm like, "How do you hunt and fish in a wheelchair?" I, I had no clue. I was super ignorant at the time because, you know, I feel, I feel like a lot of able-bodied people have no idea what wheelchair people can do. Um, and this guy started telling me all this cool stuff he he can do. He wants he does skiing. He does elk hunting. He fly fishes, rafts, kayaks all sorts of stuff and at the end of the conversation i exchanged numbers with them, and i told him that if i was ever in, if i was ever paralyzed i'd be i'd rock it just like him and then a week later i was in a rollover where my buddy was driving we were on our way to bird hunting and i give him a call from uh, bozeman deaconess hospital and he's like hey you want to go hunting and i'm like no i just got paralyzed in a car crash i got life flighted over to bozeman deaconess and he came in and he kind of gave me the whole crash course of the stuff that's going to suck but the stuff that's going to be you know really cool uh, going forward and i so I, I really had got to skip a lot of the um the 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 pity party the you know my life's gonna suck because i really realized that there's a lo- bunch of really cool things that you can do um just just by being that guy so recently so
0: the serendipity of meeting him okay yeah. that i understand but saying hey i'll give you a call if i ever become paralyzed
1: and then you became paralyzed weeks later a week well, later i told him i'd rocket just like him if i was ever in a wheelchair because i thought he was awesome at what he, what he did and our plan was to actually go hunting you know really the, the day that i called him but i was paralyzed that night before um so you know he, he thought i was just calling him to you know to go out hunting um and i was like hey no actually i got in a car crash um and then he came to the hospital and like i said he gave me all that like that helpful information of the stuff that's going to be rough but the stuff that's going to be awesome so what was his reaction when you told him that you were paralyzed? Did he think that you were
0: lying to him?
1: Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it blew his mind. I remember him being like, no way. Um, and he thought I was joking, I think, for a bit. But, I mean, I was pretty uh, high on a lot of drugs that they had me on at that point in time. But uh, I do remember him, you know, his mind being blown. And then he kind of came in. And like I said, he gave me all that helpful information.
0: So you were able to, which is which is interesting, right? Because this is somebody who's... Who's a kindred spirit in so many ways, who's doing a lot of this stuff that you do all the way along. So you guys connect it as people. And yes. then suddenly he's a he's a bit of a mentor.
1: How did the skiing come about? Were you a skier before your uh, accident, before the rollover? So before my barrelization, I mean, I'm I'm from the Midwest originally. I'm from Kakona, Wisconsin. Um, and the Midwest is nothing but kind of ice hills that have terrain parks everywhere. And I was a snowboarder before um and then uh the the skiing kind of happened almost immediately because i knew dave skied um but uh you know I, I tell people that i've never skied before i've only been on a mono ski or in a, on a snowboard um but yeah i feel like that's i got into skiing right away because i felt like it was the one thing that was you know pretty similar and then just you know after you link a few turns on the bunny hill you're like oh okay i i this feels right um and I mean, just the feeling of sit I haven't found anything that's close to it uh, in the disabled world yet that makes me feel like I'm, you know, back, bef- you know, before my injury.
0: Did you take some of those falls, the same kind of falls that you took when you were first learning how to snowboard, catching that outside edge and just yep. the
1: high yeah, side, high side flight? Yeah, the heel side fly- edge, yeah, edge on a snowboard is the same thing as catching that high side when you know you know it's coming and feels like you're getting you're the head of a sledgehammer getting slammed into the ground on a sit ski. So. Um, but yeah, I remember being bruised up pretty badly. I remember them telling me to let them pick pick me up, and I refused, and I realized why they wanted me to do that because I was exhausted that first couple of days. But um, I think on day two, we were in the bowl um, uh, at Big Sky um, in the Black Diamonds, and it was super cool to be up there. I mean, I tumbled the whole way down, but um, Dave definitely uh, has an interesting style of point it straight down the hill as fast as he can, um, and I've uh, kind of adapted a lot of that early on, so. Now I'm finally learning how to turn, I guess, with racing. How did the racing come about? Did you decide? Because it sounds like he
0: wasn't necessarily racing. Did you find that on your own? Uh, No. So let's
1: see here. I ended up doing a a video with the big couloir and uh, some big mountain skiing and stuff with big sky. And then uh, me and my wife went up to Alaska. And uh, for our 10 year anniversary trip during the summer, and we did kind of the cruise trip, and we got all the way out to um, Fairbanks, and one of the directors of uh, Challenge Alaska was there, um, and I had an adaptive hat on. I think it was from Higher Grounds, um, and he noticed it, came up, talked to me. Uh, he has a paralyzed daughter, and she's into racing now, um, and he mentioned that they were doing some adaptive camp up uh, up there that winter, um, and it was like a hel- helicopter ski camp slash race camp thing. I mean, I was more interested in the free riding and the helioskiing, and, you know, I heard of Andrew Kirka and Robbie Drubin and stuff like that before, and we went up there, had a really good time. Um, First time Engage was up there with those guys, I mean, I was horrible at it. Um, Kirka's wonderful uh, training technique of you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, uh, motivated me to uh, keep trying to get better at it because it was one of the few things that I wasn't able to pick up immediately uh, in the sit skiing stuff, so... um, it, it was uh, basically after doing that heli ski camp, I got into racing because I wanted to be kind t- of t- learn more about the actual science behind the turn. Because being a snowboarder, I used to be, you know, take that, you know, that cheapo, you know, kind edge tuner, I had no idea what I was doing. I'd scrape the crap out of my edge, not knowing what it was, threw it in my roof box, let it bounce around was my knowledge of ski tuning. Um, and I wanted to like understand what, you know, side cut was and, you Know tuning skis and honestly, all that stuff's super nice because now like, I'm able to, you know, I can tell if my base doubles are off, I can tell if my ski's detuned, and it's kind of cool because before ski racing, it was I just thought the snow was weird. Um, but yeah, so basically, they all convinced me to get into ski racing, and then I did it for about three years, um, kind of more of a showing up kind of thing. I, uh, uh, one of my buddies, Sam Mahoney, um, got me into uh, NSCD down in Winter Park. Um, and they were super helpful. They kind of helped me out early on. Um, I did about two years of uh, kind of living in my van. Um, I have a, 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 a Toyota—not and Toyota. I have a, a, a Ford Transit van that I've converted over to kind of a ski mobile. Um, and I did two years of training. Uh, I guess that training, but I basically showing up to races a couple days before and then going down the race courses. Um, and then after that, we uh, the year before the games, they made the long list, and then I kind of committed really fully to to ski racing and uh training down at nscd for about three or four months down there so
0: how were you able to do that right because you had your accident your your twins were three years old yep business uh breeding golden retrievers yeah emily has been in the business for 40 years right i mean yeah. you're juggling a lot you're coming to us from your greenhouse, yeah. like. You're you're, a guy who's got a lot going on. How did you get the
1: time to go and and ski? I think that's kind of, so I got into ski racing three years ago, and I've been paralyzed for about nine years. So my kids were old enough when I got into racing where I could at least leave for a couple days. But a vast majority of my racing career, I guess, has been, you know, having 30 things going on at home, fighting all that stuff up running out the door the last minute making my way up to canada or park city or, or winter park getting there maybe a day before the races getting on snow and then racing hoping for the best um and then flying back as soon as possible to get back to helping with all these projects i have going on um i've always been kind of a uh my plate needs to be absolutely full um or overflowing to keep my brain entertained uh i'm very add and i have uh, a lot of distractions and a lot of hobbies, but I think it's been working out pretty well. Um, but yeah, we, you know, my family breeds golden retrievers, so the the, the year that I made the, the long list for the games, my wife retired from a real estate, uh, not real estate, um, an insurance agency, um, and she took over the day to day operations of the dog kennel, um, and um, I focused on the racing, I guess, the training that year. That was my first year of like full training, and I would say I only trained for about a month and a half at Winter Park. Um, just because obviously I have kids and all these other things going on, but um, it was nice to be able to like focus on training and understanding what I was doing. We went to Norway and Sweden that year, um, right before the games. Um, um, actually the, the year of the games was my first year kind of fully training, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I wish I could dedicate more time to the racing, but you know, I, I definitely don't, I don't have all my eggs in that one basket. Um, I like a lot of other things that I want to focus on. Um, and the new property we purchased, uh, actually for the commercial, like service and therapy, gold retriever kennel, um, ended up being an organic fig farm, strawberry farm, and it ended up having all these extra, uh, income streams. So now it's, uh, this next six months is kind of a panic trying to figure out what we're doing with all of it, trying to figure out what we're going to grow in the greenhouse and, um, how to maintain the property and all that stuff. But the, uh, the zoning, the HOA covenant issues that don't, don't exist out here and, just the space is it it's so nice being close to Bozeman, but also being in the country. It looks like an absolutely beautiful place that you just
0: just purchased. What constitutes the day-to-day in the Golden Retriever breeding? Like how many, how many animals do you have? Are you are you breeding and training? Uh and, and how how does that work? Do you have do you have your dogs who are the
1: breeders or you bring in dogs or how does how does that all come together yeah so um so our kennel name is harvest time kennels um we actually have four locations it's a family-run business my mom started it about 40 years ago um i have a satellite location of, of her kennel and i'm kind of branching off and creating my own commercial you know professional like world-class kennel out here um but what we end up doing is um i have five sisters and when i was a kid me and all my my sisters used to have you know one or two dogs apiece. We, they were, they grew up with us. We trained them. We did dog shows. I was in Chicago, Minneapolis, um, Gre- uh, Green Bay, Mil- uh, Madison, all those locations uh, doing dog shows as a kid. Um, and then when we all turned about 18 and kind of moved out of the house, we switched over to a thing called we called the guardian dog program or a foster dog program. So um, we don't actually have any personal dogs ourselves. Um, we basically give out you know you know super high end quality golden retrievers uh, to families in the Bozeman area basically Montana, but mainly in Bozeman. And those dog- dogs get to live, you know, normal, happy lives with those families. Um, they get to uh, then typically when they get two years old, we do all their health clearances, you know, hips, elbow, eye clearances, heart clearances, genetic testing, all that stuff. And then we do, you know, those dogs uh, at two years old, after they've passed all those, they'll be part of the program. Once a year, they'd come to our house to have a litter of puppies. And then of th- those puppies, about a third of our dogs will do service or therapy work. Um, so we did, we know we donate dogs to a bunch of organizations, primarily the Midwest. So canine comfort dogs, um, um, blind leaders, uh, champs program. Um, actually Canada, we have a contract with them. All their blind leader dogs that are gold retrievers come from one of our kennels, which is kind of cool. Um, and then a lot of, we do, we do sell dogs, but a lot of those dogs also, you know, kids with, the autism down syndrome um you know cognitive issues Um, a lot of those families get our dogs just because they make great you know companions for those dogs um but yeah we've we've done it forever um and it's kind of cool that it's kind of expanded into being you know a family-run business i have two sisters one in minneapolis and one in uh, up north wisconsin that have you know smaller kennels um but it's it's nice because you know everyone asks me like oh it's you do service and therapy golden retrievers because you're in a wheelchair and it's like actually no i've i've done i've met wheelchair people my entire life um a lot of blind people as well um um, and it was cool to kind of be actually you know thrown into Craig Hospital when I got paralyzed and seeing all of these dogs you know playing tug-of-war with us and you know just coming into our rooms and stuff and it's like before that before I got paralyzed those dogs were kind of a, a a story that was you know I was I was told and I got to see some of it but I never got to see it firsthand so it is cool that we you know we get to I, I get to see a lot more firsthand experience with service and therapy dogs, so um, I, I enjoy very much what I do.
0: But you don't you you breed them and, yep. and raise them, but not necessarily you don't have your own
1: service dog. So I don't have a service dog. Honestly, I don't think that I am as disabled as a lot of other people. Just because I'm a lower injury, I'm incomplete. I mean i I look at service dogs. You know, you know when you when you start getting to a higher level of paralyzation, they become more of a benefit. Um, I don't really need a service dog personally. Um, I don't think um, the therapy dogs, I mean, honestly, I have so much going on in general that I don't think I'd even have time for my own personal dog, just because um, it requires a lot of training. And a lot of people don't know that a, a full-blown service dog usually ends up costing about $40,000 in training. And a lot of them actually flunk out of those programs um, where they have to pass all these different tests. and. Uh, m- I actually prefer my my golden retrievers to love everybody and want to be everyone's best friends. And most of the dogs that do uh, service work for us, they are, are more of, you know, focused in, dialed in. Um, they're, you know, they don't want to be pet by everybody. Um, so I personally like the dogs that, you know, are everyone's best friend. And those are the ones that I like at my house typically. So,
0: so the ones that are working versus the ones that want to be everybody's yeah. best friend or your yeah. You're actually there just to love them. Really, is definitely. is your job?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: How did the relationship come with with Big Sky? I mean, you're a Montana guy, and and you've skied a bunch of bunch of first descents, like Big Couloir, which is what forty to fifty degrees, and forty to fifty yeah. degrees is kind of like, you know, like if you're standing, your shoulder can touch the snow right above you as you're making your turn. Whereas you are in a monoski. you're a whole heck of a lot shorter. Like I was amazed one time when I saw a picture of me and I had no idea that I was making a turn and, and my lower arm was basically on the ground. I had no idea that my arm was parallel to the ground and basically on the ground, like on every turn. And, You know, when you're making, when you're, when you're on that kind of angulation, what's that like? Because you can't get too angulated, but you want to be angulated enough that you can actually make the turn and stay in control. So on that kind of steep pitch, what's that like?
1: Yeah, uh, so before, well, when I did the big couloir, uh, so the big couloir is what, I think it's think 1,600 feet or 1,700 feet of like 50 to 55 degrees. Um, so it's extremely long and uh, uh, steep as well. Um, it's, you know, when I did it, it was pretty uh, pretty deep snow in there, which is nice. So when you, I, ca- I kind of call it fall turning. It's more like jump turning. So, you know, I, when I'm turning on steep stuff, I literally am falling over, uh, and almost, and I sink my left outrigger into the ground, and I'll actually end up like twisting my body um, uh, to almost fall. Turn. So you're actually not really going left or right. You're actually falling, sinking your outrigger, and then almost doing like a, a, a pull up with your arm in the snow, kind of half upside down, while your ski follows around. A lot of that really deep, steep snow, it seems to catch your ski a lot, a lot of times. So you do have to ski it in that right condition. Um, the the, the big is really cool, but like the, the the really selling point to where I ski is uh, the tram is is kind of the um, is, is why I love big sky. It's, uh, you know, rest, rest in peace. It actually just retired this year. They're building a new one. Um, but, you know, it's I feel like it's one of the few places you can go ski in the U.S. as a sit skier and be able to look at something, point at it and say, I want to ski that without having to hike for two days to get to it, you know. Um, Aspen Highlands, Breckenridge, all the really cool resorts that have really cool terrain that looks fun and scary at the same time. You can't really get too easily without a lot of work. Um, where you know, the gullies is pretty similar, uh, pitch of, of the big couloir. Um, so are like Marks and Lennon's and Dictators, but you can literally just ski to them in a sit ski. And I haven't been anywhere else that, um, that, that's been like that. But the connection I made with Big Sky was, um, I got asked after doing the, um, the big cool R video. um, We, I made some friends with some of the FPV drone guys and some of the media team people, and they wanted to do some filming with the adaptive program uh, called Eagle Mount at big sky. Um, And then I linked up with those guys. And then the following, you know, at the very end of the spring, that was the last year of the pond skim at big sky. And uh, I ended up doing the pond skim. I feel like more people know me from the, shirtless pond skimming that I did, uh, than, um, than anything else. But, um, but that was kind of the beginning of my partnership with big sky. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's cool to be kind of a promoter of a big mountain, um, that is, you know, has some really unique model ski, you know, ability, I guess that you can, you can get to places that you just can't get to other places.
0: You skimmed over, no pun intended. I guess I did pond, but, uh, the, the pond skimming you uh so this this is i mean you sort of became became famous quickly for this pond skimming it seemed like it took on a life of its own went went viral how did you make the decision to essentially i mean it looked like you you were wearing a bathing suit you know surf chunks whatever it was and that was pretty much it what did you how did that happen and then as a follow-up to that, what did your wife think of your of your decision to go go pond skimming?
1: Yeah, so the the pond skim was it was kind of an impulse thing. Uh, the year before, um, I saw people doing it. I'm like that'd be really fun, but I didn't didn't end up signing up. So the following year, I'm like I'm for sure doing doing it. I signed up in the morning. Um, but you know, uh, spring skiing is probably my favorite time of the year. You can go off terrain park jumps. They're all pretty forgiving. You can go up the biggest booters that they have. And you, know, when you land, it doesn't feel like you're breaking your back again. Um, you know, I was skiing the whole day shirtless, um, with a bunch of my friends. Um, and then we got up to the, the top of the Hill. Uh, I'll, I'll take a lot of credit to all the college kids that were up there that had backpacks full of beer saying, do you want to pound a beer with me? Uh, and I'm like, yes, let's do this. So, I definitely drank quite a few beers up top. Uh, and then, uh, it was actually funny the A lightning was actually starting to happen across the Canyon. So they were going to shut the pond skim down and I got bumped forward a few people and they, uh, just let me go. And I hauled ass down the Hill and, uh, it worked out really well. I was definitely worried about that knuckle. I've seen so many people who go too fast on a pond skim and hit that exit knuckle and they get launched into the stratosphere. Um, so I was a little worried about that, but I kind of figured that the sit-ski was going to sink a lot faster. So I figured you had to go fast enough. Um, one of my buddies uh, from Steep Motion Works, um, Satchel, was did the pond skim on the one right to me, the shorter pond. Um, and he filmed it with a GoPro right through the, the video. So it was a really cool angle, a really cool shot that he got done. And then I uh, decided to throw my outrigger twirl on it at the end. Uh, and it, was, uh, it, was, it, went, it went as good as it could possibly go, I think. <laughs> So I mean, we've got to we've got to describe a little bit of what exactly
0: the pond skimming is, right? I mean, you're going across the water. How how long a distance is this? So you're going use the knuckle like a little jump to get into basically like a pool kind of thing, but it's yeah. a pool of old, little bit more than frozen water, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so the big sky pond scam actually is was built really good for a sit skier. Uh I mean, it, there was two ponds. There was like a long, what is it? A shorter one that's maybe I'm horrible at distances. Maybe a hundred feet. The long one was, and then maybe the shorter one was like fifty to seventy-five feet. Um, and we, you know, the a lot of a lot of ponds that I've seen are built basically. People are, they just bring up hoses and they fill up a you know dig a whole lot of the snow, put a tarp in there and fill it up with water. Um, and then people, you know, typically are drinking and with with costumes on, fly across that thing as best as possible. Um, and I haven't seen very many sit skiers get across the pond before, which I'm pretty happy that I'm one of the few people who have achieved the getting completely across. And, uh, you know, it was nice because the, the, the transition from the water to the snow was almost flat. And a lot of times there's a big drop-off where it almost goes straight in like this. And when you go in there, people dive bomb, you know, they, they, you know, they, they hit, they hit, they jump out of the water and then they sink basically. Um, And I also think that a lot of people lean back too far. They think they're worried about that front nose catching and then, you know, just face planning. So I feel like as soon as I got in there, I was actually leaning forward more um, than I think a lot of people have. But yeah, it it worked out well. I I don't know. uh, I don't know also how to describe it. I, I just went as fast as I could and it worked out well. And you skimmed along the pond
0: and made it to the other side, which watching yeah. a lot of these, there are a lot of skiers who do it, and there's not a super high success rate.
1: Yeah, A lot of people yeah. crashing. I don't see very many people doing it. I did watch a guy do a double backflip somewhere into a pond skim and made it. That's impressive. I think next year I got to throw one of those in there maybe. Just throw a single sack <laughs> flip into the pond skim. So yeah. now what did...
0: What, what did your wife think about you deciding you were going to do the pond skim and then and then when you were
1: successful? My wife seems to keep in- increasing our life insurance over and over and everything that I do. Um, so she's super supportive, and she's waiting for that payday, I think. Uh, but she she likes what I'm doing. She knows what I'm, generally speaking, I don't really do anything that's too dangerous. I don't think it's all within my wheelhouse. Um, I think actually doing downhills and super Gs are more dangerous than any of the steep stuff that I ski – just because I, when I'm skiing, all when I'm skiing, most of the stuff that I'm doing, I'm doing it on specific days where the snow's, you know, soft enough to catch me. Um, if I started tomahawking and stuff like that, but you know, she's very supportive of it. She likes it. Uh, we get to do a lot of cool things because of it. So, um, and she's happy that I'm actually out there doing, you know, positive stuff. And she likes that I'm trying to promote, you know, I would say independence and, you know, for disabled people and kind of, I, I definitely feel like I need to be doing cool stuff in a sit-ski so that the people who do see me, if they ever do end up getting paralyzed, they know that there's a lot of really cool stuff that they can do. Um And kind of give them the same opportunity that I got from Dave pool. Um, Cause I, I, I like I said, I, I had a very short window where I thought my life was going to suck. I don't, I don't know if I had it um, uh, because I knew someone in a wheelchair doing really cool stuff. So my wife likes that part of it. Um She probably, doesn't like when I have to leave a lot um, with racing and stuff very often because I'm definitely, you know, I, I come home, I, my I explode the house and then I leave to go to another race. Um, so she's not super happy, but um, she did end up getting a quitter job and now she runs the dog kennel and we're working at the greenhouse. So I don't think she's too mad. Is she a skier too? Uh, she does ski. Um, She's definitely like a blue square kind of skier. Uh, both my kids ski. Um, My son's getting really good finally, which is cool. So he's like, skiing black diamonds and stuff. Um both actually we all did uh my wife, daughter and son all did uh the a black diamond for the first time at um at the bowl at Big Sky, which is super cool. And uh my son Luke is definitely though, he can actually ski it well. My my other my wife and my 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 daughter are they're good. They got down it, but they uh they like the blue blue square groomers. Sounds
0: like a lot of fun. It's great that you guys are all getting a chance to join to to enjoy it together. I think that's one of the cool things about skiing. What is, what is next for you? How does this all work? Are you going to stay in racing through Torino? Uh, you just had a a huge, another Epic filming event that you did at big sky, another first descent. Uh, are you picking out the first descents? Does racing kind of complement it? Does it fit in there? Then you get a little, little of the, you know, bringing bring the dogs in and doing some of the mentor stuff i mean you are as you said a busy busy
1: guy yeah uh so racing i mean uh, my goal was to get to the paralympics uh was my big goal um but my my real goal with racing was to be able to get better and be able to compete with you know you know andrew kirka is one of of my big mentors in the racing community and and just in general as it's keen and I can't touch that guy. He is significantly faster than me. And, and until I can touch him or be, be able to compete legitimately with him, um, I, I don't feel like I'm done by any means. Um, I I definitely want to go to uh, uh, Italy, uh, the next games. Um, I think that my life will always be kind of that show up and race kind of thing. I don't know if I'll ever be able to commit you know, an entire solid year of racing and training just because I have you know kids wife businesses and things like that um but you know as long as it's fun i'm in i'm I'm in i'll I'll continue doing it as long as i'm enjoying it um once it becomes a burden or frustrating or you know something not enjoyable i'll probably end up going back to just free skiing but um i'll I'll probably be doing 50 50 you know just big skiing big sky with my friends and family filming with the the media teams there Uh, mountain collective path i do some stuff with them as well um uh, you know, I think I, want to, I want to learn how to do a backflip. I, I used to do backflips and rodeos on my, on my snowboard and stuff and uh, I could do some pretty cool terrain park stuff, but I, I feel like the sit ski is uh, a lot more of a risk for screwing up your shoulders and the rest of your body. So I think I'll probably end up going to Woodward and going into the foam pit and seeing how, how safe it feels. Um, but I'll probably be doing both for quite a while. I think, um, until something becomes less fun than, uh becomes less fun than it is currently
0: and is it an issue with regard to age at all because what you're 38
1: 39 kind of thing 39 man does that feel like 40 uh it does not feel like 39 at all um yeah i uh, my brain thinks my brain still thinks i'm 19 i my body disagrees my acid reflux and stomach (laughs) disagrees I, I would say as long as I'm healthy enough and I don't really foresee any major issues with, you know, uh, injuries, I, I think I might be done doing downhills. I feel like downhills are a little bit of an insane sp- uh, speed sport. And I feel like everyone mm-hmm. that I go to, I feel like so- I see someone with a broken shoulder or just uh, a dis- has concussion. So I don't know how much I'll be doing that stuff in, in the future, but um, I like I love slalom. I like GS a lot lately. Um, but I think but the age... I don't think age really applies that much in in, in the sit skiing community. I feel like we don't have as many. Our field is much smaller. So I, I think I'm able to be in the top 10 possibly at the games next uh, in in Italy Um, for that stuff. I, I don't know if I'm catching, you know, your room capture or Jesper Peterson and stuff. Those, you know, 20 year old kids that have been skiing for 18 years. I don't think my 43 year old self will be able to catch those guys, but you know, who knows maybe some light bulb will turn on and, um you know i feel like that's the big thing with me once the light bulb comes on it's it's on there it's like riding a bike for me if i you know and i feel like this year was a lot of light bulbs uh, a lot of light bulbs came on um the 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 race courses have definitely been um are cool to actually get used to getting close to gates and learning how to do the um you know learning how to pressure a, a turn when you think like not going directly at gates, not going directly at, you know, like looking at the line that actually isn't visible, but you have to know where to turn, like making 80% of your turns above, above the gate and trying to cut up underneath them. You know, when you're brand new and you're just a free skier, you definitely are. um, You're definitely going more direct at gates than you should be. And it's hard to understand line choice. So it is, I really like the learning, you know, the, the line choice uh, in ski racing. So it's
0: a, it's a, it's a puzzle that you have to
1: solve, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. And I'm excited because I feel like this year, well, at least with GS racing, I feel like my line choice is getting better. And now I just have to get used to you know, pressuring the ski and knowing that when I pressure it hard enough, where it'll actually take me. And I've had a few light bulbs this year that have gone off that uh, is making GS skiing a lot more fun for me.
0: Yeah, it's it's a matter of bringing the technical side of what you can do because obviously you're a great skier, but to take the technical side of what you do and be able to put that turn in the proper place, so matching your technique with your tactics and yeah. and 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 making it all work and building throughout, which is which is really intriguing. And it sounds like it sounds like it's intriguing. I mean, it sounds like you've got the The intriguing, I'm scared kind of running some of these first descent things, but then it sounds like there's something in it for you on the racing side, whether that's the, are you always, were you
1: always a competitive guy? Um, I feel like I am competitive and that is actually one of my biggest things that frustrate me with ski racing is I don't feel like ski racing is competitive at all. I, I don't. In the aspect that when you go on a start gate, I have no idea how fast the guy went before me or after me, Um, and if they hit a hole somewhere. So I have a hard—it's a hard balance between you know pushing the limits, being on the edge of control, and also surviving to get through a race course. Where I, you know we went to adaptive spirit this year together, and those uh, you know double slow, uh, GS courses when there's two old. like the NASCAR course, yes. yeah. I I love those. They're so much fun because when I see someone pass me my brain like loses it and I'm like, okay, I'm going to kill myself to try to beat this person. And I had a really fun race with Kirka, and I was within a gate of him at the bottom. And, um, I talked a lot of crap on the top of the hill and he, uh, I know, so I knew he was skiing harder than he, he, uh, at least I I know he wasn't giving it to me. And it was, I like that stuff. I feel like I ski much better or faster when I feel like I feel the urge to go like that someone's beating me, um, where my racing, career i feel like i've always gotten to the bottom of hills and i'm like gosh i wish i wish i would i would have gone faster or you know you know you know cut some gates closer and things like that and um so i do i do struggle with the competitive side of it even though i am competitive that racing definitely um like we need to start doing like bank slalom snowboarding style stuff with sit skis or like the mono wax and things like that i feel like those are all uh more naturally my 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 style than the, the um you know, wait in the line, go down the race course, and then look at a clock to see how good you did. Um, I want to know if I want to, you know, if I went past the, the line at the, before the other people did, I know I won.
0: Which is, which is interesting, because that's one of the issues with ski racing is that you sort of get that clock in your head, right? Where you think, okay, okay, I'm not going fast enough here. I've got to pick it up. I've got to do whatever. But you don't have the feedback of somebody directly next to you that you see either they're ahead of you or they're not ahead of you. It's kind of like you've had enough experience that, you know, when you're going fast, when you're not going fast, when you need to take a little bit of risk, when you don't need to take a risk. And, and I'd imagine in a lot of ways, that's a product of not having a ton of experience for you that you're, you're building that right now to going, okay, now that was a good turn. That was a good section. That was a good line. And then you start building the understanding and then you can bring the stuff that you do naturally to the sport. It's going to be really fun to watch you guys race in Cortina because it's just, it's such a spectacular area, but it's also, you know, it's got a lot of, a lot of variety, particularly up top. You've got a bunch of, bunch of knolls, actually most of the way down, you've got a bunch of knolls and changes of terrain and stuff where you've got to figure out where the course is. So that's going to be fun. Can we can we change uh change it up just a little bit? We do this thing at the end where we do five questions in five minutes. So it's just quick yeah. questions. They're not exactly completely, they're not, they're not connected. They're not uh, you know, not classified, you know, thematically or anything. So right. so here we go. Let's uh let's see what we have for you. We're looking at you in a greenhouse. This seems yeah. like it could be appropriate. Do you ha- have a favorite flower or
1: plant? And why? Um, cilantro. Uh, mainly for pico de gallo. I I will eat anything with cilantro, and I find it crazy that some people think it tastes like soap. <laughs> people
0: do think it tastes like soap. I that that to me, I'm a I'm a huge cilantro fan as well, so. It's it's great to great to hear that you're a cilantro fan, and because it, it, to me it's just such a such a fresh taste, which I love cilantro. So I, I'm in agreement with you on that one. Uh, how do you stay optimistic? You're you always seem like you're the smiling guy. If we see all your photos, you're the smiling guy. You seem like you're leading people along. How do you stay optimistic? Is it something that just just happens?
1: Um. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I. I've always been kind of a, you know, sh- shittering it off the pot kind of person. That's my grandma's sl- saying. Um, I don't I don't saying. necessarily okay. see the point of being grumpy. I mean, I definitely look, look at things through a jaded lens, I think, but I think I am. What does that mean? Uh, What's the jaded lens? I like knowing what I don't like about people or things just so I'm prepared for it. Um, and then once I know that I can look past everything else, um, and I don't have any problems once I know, I don't like being surprised by people's issues. Um, and I like, I look for them early on and once I know them, I don't have to worry about, um, I don't know how to describe it. I, I I just, I don't feel like I'm always the most optimistic person, um, uh, with social interaction stuff, but I am always looking to have fun. I am always looking to. You know, find a new thing that keeps me entertained. Um, and I really do like bringing people out um, and doing stuff. And, you know, actually I heard when, when I first got paralyzed, I I credit a lot of my stuff as just my natural, you know. They said, whenever you get paralyzed, whoever you were before gets amplified. Where if you were a Debbie Downer or a grumpy person before, every the glass was half empty, um, you just become way worse in that matter. Um, where I was always a glass half full. Where even if something went bad, I was able to look at it through a better lens of like, well, okay, well, it sucks that I got paralyzed, but at least I got you know, my kids get you know, I, my kids never get an excuse why they don't want to do something or why they hurt. I'm like, oh, do you think your dad likes being in a wheelchair? Um, they they don't get any excuses, and it's great for parodying my kids. Um, I think um, I think the I, I think having that positive outlook is, is important. And I'm glad that I was that before. And I think I've gone that route, I guess.
0: You do a lot of things. I mean, I'd imagine there's a lot of work, like physical labor kind of work. I've seen your, your Instagram where you're on the floor, putting the flooring in your kitchen. Uh, you know, you, you, you seem to do a lot of work that way. Skiing, it helps if you're fit. Uh, doing some of these first descents, you have to get there. And obviously there's been some support to help you get to some of these, some of these peaks, but you have to get there too. What do you do to maintain fitness? The
1: U S team is not going to like this answer. Uh, So I, I don't do anything. I, I don't. So I've always been one of those people that work out with the activities that I do. Like I used to rock climb, um i lead trad Kime the devil's tower before i got paralyzed um i snowboarded i did a lot of mountaineering and hiking and stuff and i've never really gone to the gym honestly when i go to the gym i don't know what the machines are i don't know what to do with them i make jokes half the time and then i leave um i so most of my workout stuff is kind of in the activities that i'm doing um but with the you know we did the a- new a to z shoot thing video this year it that was in between buying this current property, trying to rebuild my uh, my transit van, um, moving all our stuff to the greenhouse, and then it was a random call that basically the guys from Big Sky's media team said, "Hey, the conditions are good," and then we kind of just went up there. And honestly, I do credit a lot of that success on that one to the guys who got me up that first deep pitch because. I feel like we, I think we crawled like 500 yards on, the, on that ridge line. It's like five football field lengths um, on a ridge line and just basically butt scooting backwards with an outrigger underneath my butt, trying not to tip over and fall off a cliff. Um, but by the time I got to the bottom of uh, a That's where you're helping us. Yeah. That's where uh, you're helping us. Yeah. When, yeah. When... I was a little worried because, you know, it's funny because, like, I feel like when you talk, you know, when you have media team people or the ski bros, they are all super supportive of you, and you know one of the media guys there was like, "Rob, I think you're underestimating how long this is going to take." I'm like, "I'm thinking you're underestimating the ability for a legless, a paralyzed guy to hike." Um, so, I think, I and then by the time I got done with the ski run, uh, on the way back down to the base camp, my arms were cramping up. I think if I would have went even a hundred feet more, I think it would have been pretty rough going down that. Um, I am trying to get back into uh, into working out at the gym and stuff, which is nice. We've been doing um, the, the U.S. team. So I'm on the development team for the U.S. this past season, um, and they've definitely given me some help with, you know, workout stuff. Um, Lori Stevens helped me out while we were in Aspen with some basic workout stuff. Um, so I'm starting to get better at it. Um, but I, uh, I am definitely not the best person when it comes to um, following the rules, I guess, for working out. Um, but it's still working. I don't know if it's going to still work in a couple of years. But getting older and older,
0: you might just have more of a rocky kind of workout. You're on the farm, right? You can chase chickens yeah. around and yeah, and yeah, <laughs> carry logs and do whatever you have to do. Yeah, I think it's right. <laughs> that seems to lead into this next question. What is your go-to superfood and junk food?
1: Oh God. Uh, so I have acid reflux and I went to the doctor and they gave me a list of everything I shouldn't eat. And then we showed it to my mom and she said that is his whole diet. Um, so, you know, acidic food, like I love chips themselves. I love ceviche. I love, um, anything that's not really spicy, but like acidic. I love, you know, you know, shrimp with lime on it and stuff like that, um, I snack eat all the time. I I do drink Mountain Dew as my junk food. That's bad. Um, but honestly, I'm from the Kokona, Wisconsin. And if you look at any cheese, it's either from Tillamook, Tillamook or Kokona. And I eat cheese. Any cheese I can find, I'll eat a ton of cheese. I think that would be my big bad one is just endless cheese. Like When you go to the grocery store and you buy those little packages of sandwich cheese, I just eat that straight up out of the, out of the peels.
0: Well, I mean, it's part of your heritage, though, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, I gotta, you know, my grandfather's grandfather did it, so I gotta do it.
0: Are you a movie guy? Do you have a favorite movie?
1: Oh, favorite movie, Donnie Darko. It's a great movie.
0: Really, I've not have you seen. seen tell Darko? me about it.
1: What's that? Um, ah, uh, Donnie Darko is a uh, what is it? It's um, it's a weird movie. It's uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is one of his first movies, and it's about time travel. Um, any movie that's like space travel, like Interstellar, the Mar uh, the Martian, uh, with Matt Matt Damon, um, but Donnie Darko movies that make you can you can watch three or four times. Like Interstellar is really good or you can watch it three or four times and understand what they're talking about. So, um, But yeah, Donnie Darko would be my favorite one.
0: All right. And so are you saying you want to be a time traveler? Is that what I'm getting out of this? Or uh, no. 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 One and done for me. Get as much out of it while you can. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Well, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time and yeah, talking you. us through your story and Yeah. Good luck in your pursuit. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. Really appreciate it. As we always say, the greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. If you've enjoyed your time here, please tell your friends, tell them to tune in, tell them to like us, tell them to follow us. This will be a traditional podcast. Please uh, subscribe to the Name Tags Chat Podcast and we will continue to give you great content. Thank you very much, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.